trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This program exists not for the purpose of convincing convincing you that I have all the answers, because I don't, clearly. But uh, rather to convince you that in times such as the ones in which we live, it's essential. We've got to think as clearly, as independently as possible. In fact, uh, during times of crisis, that's uh, probably more important than, than just about anything. Tough to do, though, right? We've got a whole blizzard of disinformation and misinformation swirling around us at every moment. So I'm here to uh, present you with what I hope is good, principled, solid information for your consideration. What you do with it, of course, is totally up to you. But I'm hoping that you'll uh, find courage and you'll find camaraderie here in the ranks of your fellow wrong thinkers, the people who question the narratives and uh, who decide to make a difference. Regardless of what uh, the people at the top are telling you, you're allowed to think or say or do. Pretty straightforward, simply uh, put, you know, we're just, hey, we're just average folks trying to be free. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Our program's brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, SolarPatriots.com, GovernYourIncome.com, HSLAmmo.com, as well as LifesavingFood.com, the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, and uh, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also in St. George, Utah. I really have some interesting stuff today. Some of this might even borderline on uh, mind-blowing, but in fact, let's do that. Yeah, let's, let's jump right in. Let's start with some of the mind-blowing stuff. So I haven't done one of these exercises for a long time, but have you ever, uh, you ever thought about writing a letter to your future self? Or for that matter, you know, maybe you've, maybe you've sat down and you've done the uh, writing a letter to myself when I was 15. If uh, future me could have appeared for a moment and said, here, kid, read this thing. You know, what kind of things would I say? There's an excellent article from James Corbett called A Letter to the Future. And I want to read this letter, but uh, when, I, when I read this to you, um, listen carefully to what he is addressing then I think you're going to be surprised to to find out when this letter was actually written. James Corbett uh, writes, well, he starts with a quote from World War I conspirator Edward Gray. The quote is, the lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. Ooh, that sounds ominous. James Corbett says, I do not write these words for my contemporaries. We are the damned. It is our lot now to watch as the lamp of liberty is extinguished our burden to bear witness to the final flickering of the flame of freedom. No, he says, I don't write these words for my peers. I write them for those yet to come, the inhabitants of that future dystopia whose birth pangs we are experiencing, the remnant of once free humanity who might, through some miracle I can't even imagine, come across this electronic message in a bottle. I know that it's almost hopeless, that the chance of these words surviving the coming Internet purge are slim at best. That even if, against all odds, this message does not wash up, or does rather wash up on your digital shores, that the chance of these words being understood by you is even slimmer. Not because you don't understand English, but because you no longer use these words I'm writing. 
freedom, humanity, individual. Still, I'm here to record the end of an era, so I will press on in the hope, against hope, that someone somewhere in that future digital dark age will have eyes to see and ears to hear. He says the darkness is descending. Let there be no mistake, we all know this. We know what it means when 17 million Americans, a full 10% of the workforce, are added to the unemployment rolls in a matter of three weeks. When they're joined by millions more newly unemployed ex-workers all around the globe. When modern-day breadlines stretch for miles in the heart of America's once-proud cities. When the phony baloney fiat money debt rises over $24 trillion and the Fed's Sovietization of the economy is complete. We know what it means when police start shooting people dead for not wearing a mask. When drones, police, uh, when drones and, and police quarantine from the sky and robot police lockdowns on the ground. When governments admit to tracking every movement of every citizen and begin internal checkpoints where digital immunity passports determine who may pass and who must stay in their home. We know what it means when billionaires start telling us that, that only their new experimental mRNA vaccines will be able to release us from this nightmare when they threaten to mark us with invisible ink tattoos to ID the vaccinated, when they tell us we will not be able to buy, sell, or participate in the economy until we can prove our immunity. It means the corona world order has arrived. Oh, sure, some still deny it. But they're only fooling themselves. They're afraid to admit that it's true. Many are still under the old conditioning that told them to bleat conspiracy theorists at anyone questioning authority. We have a name for that kind. Sheep, or sometimes sheeple. The masses in our day are kept in the pen by the jackbooted sheepdogs of the police state and led along by the political puppets who act as their shepherds. Now, occasionally a wise old-timer in the flock cottons on to the game, but the shepherd has the only ever fleeced the flock before, so he resigns himself to his fate. Why struggle? It's mostly painless. Never did the sheeple suspect that someday the shepherds would lead them to the slaughter. Now, it's a term of derision, of course, sheeple. But I like to think that it doesn't just speak to our stupidity. It speaks to a naivety, a naivety, rather, an innocence. We are trusting and gentle creatures by nature, peaceable, cooperative, and that's nothing to be scorned. If it weren't for the predators in our midst, our failings could even be counted as virtues. But I'm not here to say that. I'm here to say this. Resist. Struggle. Fight. You are not cogs in a machine, despite what the shepherds of your day may be telling you. You are free and beautiful human beings. You are not born under the authority of another. You choose how you live your life. Not some bureaucrat, not some police robot, not some immunity checkpoint algorithm or QR code. You do not need permission to buy or sell or to assemble or to speak your mind or to leave your house. You are not an asymptomatic carrier of whatever virus your misleaders are telling you to be afraid of. You do not have to shelter in place because someone in a white lab coat told you to. I want you to understand that once upon a time the government didn't have the right to know where you were, who you were meeting with, what you were buying and what you were doing 24-7. Hell, the government didn't even have the ability to do that. 
I need you to know that there was a time when you could leave your house when you wanted, travel where you wanted, buy and sell as you saw fit, meet your neighbors, protest, rally, party, live as free human beings are meant to live. Ah, what am I saying? These words, this language, it makes no sense to you anymore, does it? These concepts don't exist in your time, do they? You go where you're told to go. You stay home when you're told to stay home. You shut up when you're told to shut up. You think what you're told to think. I can't blame you, after all. You were trusting and naive and peaceful, like a sheep. But oh, how I weep for what you've become. I tried to avert it. Please believe me, I really tried. But the lamp of liberty is being extinguished, and I am bearing witness. I don't know if history is something you study anymore, but UK Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Gray made his observation about the lamps going out all over Europe at the end of the so-called 12 days period during the summer of 1914, in which mainstream history books tell us the British government was trying to avoid a world war. We are asked to believe that this prescient remark proved Gray to be a, Gray, Gray rather to be a sage diplomat racked with grief over the pain and suffering that was about to be unleashed upon the world. But this is history by the winners of the worst kind. Because in truth, Gray was himself one of the conspirators actively working to bring the First World War about. And what's more, the source of this quotation is in fact Gray himself. It was first recorded in Gray's own post-war memoir. So any tears shed over Gray over the extinguishing of uh, shed by Gray over the extinguishing of these lamps were crocodile tears, to be sure. One can well imagine that we will be told some years hence that Bill Gates made a similarly portentous remark at the onset of this corona crisis. Gazing out of the window of his $147 million, uh, 66,000-square-foot Xanada 2.0 mansion at then the epicenter of the U.S. outbreak in Washington state, Gates' post-coronavirus memoir will no doubt tell us he remarked to an underling, the lights are going out all across the globe, we shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. But his memoir will no doubt fail to inform us that he was smirking as he said it. To my children or my children's children or whatever remnant of once free humanity happens to unearth these words in that godforsaken future we are goose-stepping into. I'm sorry, I failed you. We all failed you. But remember, as long as the blood of your forebears flows through your veins, the lamp of human freedom shall not be extinguished forever. Let it shine, dear sheep. Let it shine. This was written in April of 2020, by the way. Has anything that's happened in the last uh, couple of years uh, changed the meaning of them? I don't think so. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So, uh, just out of curiosity, how did that letter to the future strike you? That was written by James Corbett. And again, I, I'm a little bit geeked out over the fact that uh, he wrote that letter in April of 2020 when uh, the uh, pandemic was just in its infancy. But I think there's a lot of stuff there that he called correctly. And I'm not saying in the future set in stone and thus this is how it's always going to turn out. But the guy definitely was paying attention. And I don't want to make it sound like I'm flexing here. I'm not trying to chest beat. But there were a lot of voices warning 
about where we are going right now. In fact, one of the more common memes I'm seeing these days is, uh, you know, uh, what's the difference between a conspiracy theory and the truth? And the answer now is uh, give it about two weeks. And you find out that all these conspiracy theories more and more resemble uh, people who saw something or noticed something or spoke out about something that they weren't supposed to say. So I don't want to fill you with a sense of, oh boy, we're, we're doomed, we're doomed. But I hope it at least gives you a figurative kick in the seat of the pants about what's at stake and why it's so important that we don't go along with, you know, the, the plans and the orders of those who think that they know best and think that they can centrally plan for every single person and hammer it all down on our heads with this one-size-fits-all approach. I know it's not easy to be a dissenter right now. This is especially true as it applies to the various mandates. I mean, you want to talk about some, some just total disregard for the proper limits, the upper limits of government power. So the Biden administration told OSHA, I need you to get out there and make these vax mandates a reality. You start enforcing these on these businesses that employ 100 people or more. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals came back and said, whoa, stay that order. You do not need to do this. The White House said, OSHA, go ahead and implement it while they uh, are sorting it out. So the Fifth District came back or the Fifth Circuit came back again and said, Really, you need to stop it. And OSHA stopped implementing the vaccine mandates and enforcing the vaccine mandates. What did I see this morning in the news? The White House is now telling businesses, go ahead and implement the mandates. I mean, I I understand how radical this sounds, but have you ever seen a more lawless White House or more lawless administration and I don't mean in the sense that uh, they're tweeting mean things and, you know, they're, they're, they're acting like they think they're the decider or whatever. <laughs> it's just total disregard. Yeah, never mind what the courts are saying. Never mind what the Constitution says. Never mind what the people want. Just do what we say. Just do it. Just do it. Go on. Do it. On the one hand, it's disturbing just because it's hard to believe there's that callous of disrespect for the limits of government power, which is what is necessary to have a free society. On the other hand, it's as simple as withdrawing your consent. If enough people, starting at the individual level, say, hey, this is not right, I'm not going to be a part of this, the machine grinds to a stop pretty quickly. Unfortunately, we've got a fair amount of people out there that I would... uh, I would portray as as heel clickers of one sort or another. Yes, sir. They are happy to click their heels and get right to work when they're told by someone in a position of authority, this is what you need to do. I mean, there are times when that kind of mindless obedience is necessary. Storm that pillbox. You know what? You can't have a democratic debate between this squad of Marines. You know, should we, uh, should we do this or not? You know, they, They need to do what they're ordered to do in that moment. But they also are acting as pieces of government property. Sorry, no disrespect to those in the military, but, you know, you are are a piece of U.S. government property till your enlistment is up. 
And that certainly would not describe all of us as citizens. As being enlisted, yes, you know, we are, we are under the complete control. So, that's, that's the radical part today. That's the radical part of the show. Just understand, you're a free individual. Your consent is more powerful than you think. It's more powerful than you've been led to believe. Don't give it so freely. Don't give it so easily. And don't go along just to avoid, you know, uh, any conflict or a disparaging word or someone questioning your motives. You want to be free? You got to be willing to, to suffer some of the inconveniences and heavy lifting involved in freedom. We all do. But the more people who get that sense of, you know what, this is, this is what I need to do. This is what I'm committed to do. You know, troubles be damned. I'm going to do this no matter what. Watch how freedom spreads out in a ripple effect around them. Through the power of their example, through the power of their actions, which, you know, I'm, I'm talking, this is just peaceful stuff here. This is not to grab your pitch, pitchforks and torches. But isn't it curious? The uh, political class treats any dissent as the equivalent of, you know, it's a lynch mob coming to, to hang us from the nearest tree. So when it comes to maintaining our freedoms, I know a lot of people have, have bought into the idea that, oh, well, you know, you just got to vote better, vote smarter. We need smarter voters to get this thing done. Well, voting's only one small part of how a person maintains their freedoms. In fact, I want to share with you, I'm just going to touch on this, but it's about an 11-page long PDF. Got this in my email yesterday from Paul Rosenberg. Parallel societies, what they are, and how they work. And I love that he starts with a quote from, uh, from Leonard Cohen, from the song Everybody Knows. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows that the game is over. Everybody knows that the good guy's lost. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, Cohen's lyric is a good description for our world's present condition, and yes, everybody knows, though some would rather fight than admit it. What most people don't know is that alternatives exist. Nonetheless, they do, and we call those alternatives parallel societies. Now, he says a parallel society is any group of people incorporating and passing on ideas about life that are outside of and separate from the ideas of an enforced culture. So this is one of the key selling points to me. Parallel societies are then voluntary. You must choose to join and remain, and since they so often run concurrently with enforced societies as they do now, since those enforced societies are jealous overlords, it requires courage to step outside of their control and choose to do something else. Now, the term parallel society was coined by Vaclav Benda, a Czech activist in the 1970s, when Eastern Europe was under Soviet domination. In the original Czech, it was Paraleni Polis. Probably butchered that, but uh, somebody who knows Czech can give me the proper pronunciation. The Parallel Polis of Benna and others was an independent society. In other words, a society based on its own values. And so Paul Rosenberg says the purpose of this primer is to show you that there is an alternative to the enforced society. But more than that, to show you that you're already familiar with parallel societies, that you already use them and find meaning in them. 
And finally, to illustrate that you have the ability to live in a parallel way right now, you have only to decide and to act. Now, I hope that grabs your attention. What? There could be a a simple solution right here in front of us, and it doesn't require all that top-down permission and, you know, consensus on the part of our overlords. Yeah, that's pretty much what he's saying. I got to take a quick break here, but when we come back, I'm just going to touch on a couple of the examples of parallel societies, and then I have a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com where you can access this PDF and give it a thorough reading of your own. I find so much of what Paul Rosenberg writes to be extremely worthwhile, and this one is no exception. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here for lifesavingfood.com. That would be my favorite food storage supplier. And I would encourage you, go to my sponsors, which you'll find at uh, my homepage at thebrianhydeshow.com. There's a link for the sponsors. Click on lifesavingfood.com. Take some time to look around. See if there's anything there that you think could uh, better position you for, uh, you know, potential rough waters ahead. A little more self-sufficiency, having a little bit of a cushion to fall back on just in case things don't go according to plan. And best of all, I'll save you 25% on your purchase price if you just put in the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. Again, that's lifesavingfood.com. Use the coupon code HYDE. Score yourself a nice 25% discount and then sleep better at night knowing you have food stores set aside for a rainy day. So I'm sharing this article. Actually, it's a PDF, an 11-page long PDF from Paul Rosenberg. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to go through the whole thing here but it's about parallel societies, what they are, and how they work. And I, to me, this is, this is one of the great ideas of our time. This is an idea whose time has come because the society that uh, most of us find ourselves in right now is uh, not only alien to, to most of the values and, and the, the morals that we were raised with, but it's hostile. I mean, it's, it's, it's openly fighting against and tearing down and trying to remove anything that can remind us of our past. So you don't have to go, you know, gear up and go fight a revolution. You can just step out of the society that's being abusive and into that parallel society. Now, here's the good news. We're already deeply familiar with parallel societies, or at least most of us are. Rosenberg says, here's why. All reasonably healthy families are small, parallel societies. In fact, he says, I've always loved this line, the very first line from Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. All happy families resemble one another. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Now, Rosenberg says, all happy families are alike because they're all parallel societies. In a healthy family, we cooperate continuously. We consider each other's personal characteristics. We treat the use of force either as a last resort or as a dirty thing. Anyone who's grown up in a reasonably healthy family knows this, not just by description, but by feel. Even if your family was only healthy on and off, 
you've still had enough experience with the good parts to internalize them and to know them by feel. Now, one level larger than the family, we find the joint activities that give us pleasure and warmth. Sharing the same model, that would be neighbors working together to help the old couple at the end of the street. Organizing the neighborhood Little League. Convening a reading circle, joining a homeschooling co-op. Training with friends at a martial arts club. Putting together a church picnic and so on at great length. We gain warmth, connection, and self-worth from these relationships precisely because they are unforced. We are doing good things and cooperating with good people because we want to. And that generates actual and self-earned and earned self-respect. Now, he says, as we go on, we'll examine still larger parallel societies. But before he goes there, he says, I need you to understand the structure of these societies. After all, structure defines fundamental and persistent operations. So he shows the picture of what an enforced society looks like with a tiny group of powerful people at the very top telling everyone below what to do and inflicting punishments on those who don't. It's a hierarchical model maintained with rules and negative incentives, that is, punishments. Then he shows what is a model of a parallel society, in which each member is unrestricted, where each can participate or not, and where each is directly connected to each other and to the real world. And he says that's the model of chosen societies, and it's the one that makes us feel good. Now, again, we're talking about, you know, neighbors organizing to care for the elderly couple's yard at the end of the road who, you know, have had health problems and couldn't get out and mow their lawn or clean up their leaves or whatever. Don't overcomplicate it. This is what government has taught us to do. Well, if it's not, you know, so complicated that only somebody in a lab coat or, you know, with very specialized training can do it, then we have no business even thinking about it. Baloney. We're smart enough to solve a lot of our own problems, and there was a time when we used to do that before we outsourced everything to government as, you know, the uh, default problem solver. Now, Rosenberg says parallel societies are also open to human growth. And by that, he means they allow anyone to work with anyone else or, are you sitting down, to choose not to. Everyone gets credit for the good things they do. Everyone directly considers everyone else's abilities, needs, and circumstances. Everyone feels needed and is needed. Now, these two models produce fundamentally different structures. The enforced model is mechanical, with every individual's actions restricted by edicts that are external to the individual. In fact, he says they're very machine-like. The voluntary ad hoc model is organic, forever self-balancing, and self-evolving. Even its goals can morph without any application of force. So he says uh, we can describe enforced societies as machines. Parallel societies are more like organisms. And these are the basic differences that he's talking about. In a machine, every part operates according to the demands of the machine. In an organism, each part operates according to its nature. Machines require a single set of rules. Organisms require goals that they reach toward. Machines subdue and regiment personal will. Organisms liberate it and enthrone it. Machine life excludes individual thought and action. Organic life thrives upon it. And a couple of the examples he gives of the larger parallel societies, um, this, you know, Jews. The Jews have always constituted a parallel society. 
<clears throat> he says Christianity was very definitely a parallel society over its first few centuries. One of their favorite sayings was, we are not of this world, and parts of it still are. Seldom over all their runs was either centralized or enforced society. Now, he points out Judaism has continued now for more than 4,000 years, Christianity for almost 2,000. And during that span, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, Assyrians, Greeks, Romans, and a hundred others have all come and gone. Yet these parallel societies have remained. Isn't that interesting? There's a great history lesson that he teaches in this that, uh, that uh, points out the history of these parallel societies. Once it's pointed out to you, it's hard not to recognize it. But again, we don't really think in these terms. We tend to think more in terms of, you know, tribal at this point or just simply, you know, I'm trying to stay out of trouble. I don't want the IRS breathing down my neck. Paul Rosenberg goes into how parallel societies operate, you know, mating, wedding, funerals. They have their mores, networks of trust, how they find meaning, how they find redemption. He talks about this uh, heroic comprehensible world but it's got to be something that uh, that is voluntary as opposed to simply coerced so this is i i would just recommend take a look at it i'm not going to say this is the answer this is the only answer but the idea is that enforced society thrives upon our weaknesses and couldn't survive without them where, on the other hand, parallel society thrives upon our virtues and couldn't survive without them. Paul Rosenberg says, Enforced society requires frightened, pliable, compliant subjects. So that's what they've cultivated. Parallel societies require will, action, passion, and endurance. So that's what they've cultivated. But he also points out it falls to us to decide which of these environments are preferable preferable rather for ourselves and our children. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I think the better choice is obvious, and perhaps you do too. But you notice he's not browbeating you into, you have to believe this or you're stupid. So I won't browbeat you either. And I suspect this might even be a good jumping off point for someone who is is working on something. Maybe you've had an idea rattling around the back of your head that uh, is is trying to come to germination, trying to, to, to bloom. Maybe this will give you that nice little stepping stone or launching pad from which to take that idea and run with it. All I know is that given the choice, I would much rather live in a society where, where it's voluntary. Your participation is voluntary. It's not coerced. It's not like, well, you know, there's a, you signed the social contract. <laughs> that seems to be kind of the default setting a lot of people turn to today. You know, the social contract requires you give up your freedoms and you do what I tell you because you chose to live in this, you know, geographic area. You would not see that in a parallel society where people voluntarily choose to be there, a, a chosen society. Well, okay, I hope that's mind-expanding enough to hold you for a little bit. We've got to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, we are back. Once again, a reminder, you can uh, subscribe to my show notes. All you have to do is go to thebrianheidshow.com, click on show notes. There's a sub- subscribe button right at the bottom of the notes. And then I will email them to you every time I uh, every time I publish another set of show notes. Look, it's simple annotations, but links to all the various articles and the various guests and commentators that join me. It's uh, it's a great way to stay a little bit better informed. I'm not going to pretend this is the only source of information you need. But I get asked on a pretty regular basis, you know, who do you trust? What sources do you go to 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 inform your view of the world? And as I've mentioned before on this program, you know, the sources that I tend to go to today are not just ones that uh, I need something to confirm my bias. Please, somebody confirm it. I'm okay with with being challenged. But I want it to be done by principled truth, not just, you know, partisan browbeating. Hey, shut up and get in line and believe this. Think that. Say that. That doesn't resonate with me. So I do, I do my diligence to try to bring you the best information I can. If you are interested in going further and delving into these topics, that's what these show notes are for. Speaking of uh, show notes here, I think we're all pretty ready for the uh, turning point where we can safely say, all right, the COVID pandemic is over. If you go back over my notes, you'll notice that uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about this in the last couple of years, probably because this is the central topic that needs to be discussed. Got a very interesting warning from a doctor that I recently interviewed. His name is Dr. Joel Hirshhorn. And his warning is that this pandemic will not end. And you need to hear his reasoning on this. Now, again, you don't have to agree with him, but this is a point of view that you're going to, that you're not going to find, um, you know, it easily available through mainstream or legacy media sources. This is the kind of point of view that the algorithms are, you know, set forth to, to find and, and uh, limit its exposure. In other words, there are people who really don't want you to hear this. Joel Hirshhorn says, Americans may not be mentally prepared to hear the really bad news. But he says the COVID pandemic is not going to end. What the government is doing and not doing will ensure there is no end to the pandemic. Just released is a new forecast of the coming COVID death toll on March 1st of 2022. And it comes from the group that's been doing the most thorough studies and modeling of the U.S. pandemic. That's the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, IHME, an independent global health research center at the University of Washington. Now, it's forecasting a total of one million COVID deaths by that date. I think this is just for the U.S. This means in about 3.5 months, there will be roughly another 250,000 COVID deaths. Now that's over 70,000 deaths a month, and that compares to about 65,000 since the pandemic began. And Dr. Hirshhorn asks the question, does that sound like progress? Does that sound like the mass vaccination effort is the solution? He says their projection may underestimate what will be happening because that forecast may be optimistic because we've not yet built into the modeling that we're releasing right now, the explicit analysis around waning immunity for vaccine-derived immunity. There's now a strong consensus among medical experts that current vaccines lose their effectiveness 
in about six months. That's why booster shots are being pushed so hard. And Dr. Hirshhorn says an endless pandemic will mean billions of dollars going to big drug companies for vaccines and a new group of expensive pills announced by Merck and Pfizer. But he says, here's the crucial point to keep in mind. Current vaccines, including booster shots, do not kill the virus, and they do not prevent the spread of the virus from fully vaccinated people. And the loss of effectiveness, especially for Delta, for variants like Delta, explains why countless more people will get breakthrough infections that are killing some people, like what happened to Colin Powell recently. Breakthrough deaths fit into the category of COVID deaths. And he says, this is the ultimate truth. We cannot vaccinate our way out of the pandemic. When more reliable data in other countries are considered compared to awful data from the CDC, we see that very large fractions of people being hospitalized or dying from COVID are fully vaccinated. Booster shots just create the illusion of doing something really effective, but mostly they just postpone bad health impacts. Dr. Hirshhorn says the entire emphasis by our government on vaccines is the biggest mistake in the history of medicine and pandemic management. As many recent analyses have shown, the CDC data are both undercounting adverse health effects of vaccines and deaths. Now, Steve Kirsch has done a good summary analysis of CDC data undercounting, and this is a couple of excerpts from what he's written. Steve Kirsch says the COVID vaccines are the most dangerous vaccines in human history. They are 800 times more deadly than the smallpox vaccine, which was the previous record holder. The vaccines have killed over 150,000 Americans and permanently disabled even more. They don't make sense for anyone of any age. The younger you are, the worse it gets. For kids, it's estimated that we kill 117 kids for every COVID death we prevent. So are we saving fewer than 10,000 lives at the expense of over 150,000 vaccine deaths? In short, we kill 15 people to save one. That's incredibly stupid. And of course, the eminent Dr. Peter McCullough has emphasized, you're about five times more likely to die of the vaccine than you are to take your risks with COVID-19. Therefore, those who chose not to get the vaccine, in fact, made a smarter choice. Another point made is those who've recovered from the disease and have natural immunity have a 56% greater chance of severe side effects should they afterwards take the jab. Now, when such a recognized medical expert says these things, the anti-mandate movement receives credibility. Dr. Hirshhorn's article goes on. It's uh, it's really, I, I like his take on stuff. Some people may think, well, he's a little strident here, but having interviewed this guy a couple of times, I am, and, and having read a number of his articles, I think he's sincere. Now, that's just a gut feeling. That's a subjective call. But I, I, my impression is that of a guy, a medical doctor, a medical um, individual pushing hard against what he sees as an outrageous affront to our personal freedoms as well as to our health. His bottom line is simply this. He says, vaccine mandates will not end the pandemic. But there's no hint that government leaders are interested in taking a new, fresh approach to addressing the pandemic. 
Hundreds of thousands of people will die unnecessarily in the U.S. and even more globally. More deadly than the virus, he says, are feckless government officials. Now, again, you don't have to agree with this. You know, my goal here wasn't to, to get you outraged or fearful. But just understand there, there, are, there are aspects of this that the, the mainstream press will not cover. It's just outside of what they consider approved opinion, allowable opinion. So for those who say, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant, I don't know if anybody's really hesitant at this point. I think most of the people have made their mind up, I'm not getting that vaccine. They've done it because they have, at some level, reasoned out either I don't trust what's happening or I'm looking at the people who are getting sick or I'm looking at the young people having to deal with pericarditis or myocarditis. Somebody pointed something out the other day. You might want to try just, you know, as, as an enlightening exercise. Google the phrase, died suddenly. And it's, it's astonishing what you'll see in terms of the number of, like, sports figures or celebrities or young people who, after receiving the vaccine, have inexplicably died. Coincidence, I believe, is the word that's being used. Well, it's just a coincidence. That's all it is. But those coincidences are starting to pile up. It's getting harder and harder to pretend like, well, it probably has nothing to do with, you know, any any vaccine. I can hear you say, but Brian, what about the people who've taken the vaccine and had no adverse effect? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm grateful. I have family members who've taken the vaccine and had no adverse effect. And I pray that it remains that way. But for me, the deciding factor is and always has been someone is holding a knife to my throat and saying, wouldn't you rather take the vaccine or I have to cut your throat? And I just can't go along with that kind of coercion. Yeah, it's a figurative knife, but let's let's not pretend that, uh, you know, Brian, really, we're leaving this up to you. All we're trying to do is take away everything in your life that uh, enables you to live a productive life and hoping you'll make the right choice and do what we're telling you to do. That's not coercion. We're just trying to be helpful. I don't really need that kind of help, but hey, thanks anyway. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where wrong thinkers can gather to consider opinions that uh, were just not allowed onto that 3x5 index card of allowable opinion. It's really kind of a fun place, too. You might hear some things or learn some things or uh, discover some ideas that uh, you're just not allowed to think about elsewhere. It's uh, remarkably uh, exhilarating, and I'm glad you're a part of it. Our program is brought to you by SolarPatriots.com, also MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, GovernYourIncome.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, that's uh, in St. George, Utah. The Heather Turner team for Patriot Home Mortgage, also in St. George. 
and HSL Ammo, which, by a remarkable coincidence, is also based in St. George, Utah. Thank you so much for being part of our audience today. I, w- I want to start with a little bit of, uh, uh, this is kind of a, you know, drink from the fire hose kind of thing from uh, Brandon Smith. And again, with so many eyes on the Kyle Rittenhouse case, there are a number of lessons that we can learn from this case. Brandon Smith has keyed in on some of the main ones, but one of the big ones that he points out is the this case proves the establishment wants to bring back Star Chamber tyranny. I don't know if you remember the movie. I think it was a Michael Douglas movie years ago, The Star Chamber. And it's, it was about extrajudicial justice. In other words, you know, the very powerful, they have their own way of dispensing and dealing with justice, something us little people don't have the option of doing. So Brandon Smith writes, one of the most interesting stories from the early days leading up to the American Revolution involves the events surrounding the Boston Massacre. On March 5th of 1770, the Stamp Act had just been repealed, but British soldiers were ever-present in Boston as a show of force against the rowdy colonists. The British government, in order to save face, implemented the Townsend Act instead as a means to continue taxing the colonies, without representation, of course, and anger was growing in the streets. The presence of the Redcoats in the city added to the public fury and protests were sparked. One such protest was raging in front of the Custom House on King Street over a disagreement between wig maker Henry Knox and a soldier. The argument grew into what was later described as a riot. Allegedly, the crowd became violent and started throwing objects at the soldiers. One of the soldiers let off a shot and someone yelled fire, causing all the Redcoats to shoot into the crowd, killing five of them and injuring others. Now, the colonial justice system could have chosen to use their position to railroad the soldiers in question and make an ideological example out of them. Instead, in the first trial of Captain John Preston, ample legal representation was given. In fact, the lawyer was John Adams, who would later become the second president of the United States, along with a fair trial. Adams' position that the soldiers believed they were under imminent danger of bodily harm convinced the jury and a not-guilty verdict was given for the majority of the soldiers with manslaughter charges for two of them. Now, John Adams felt that his victory in defense of the British soldiers was actually a victory for the colonies and ultimately the revolution. You see, the British looked upon the colonials as insurrectionists and barbarians. They did not think that a fair trial for a soldier in the colonies was even possible. So by proving them wrong with grace, logic, and objectivity, Adams and the jury destroyed a common lie perpetuated by the monarchy and the British establishment. Namely, the colonies had more honor than the British did. Now, this lack of honor among the British establishment became evident before and during the Revolutionary War when the Star Chamber became the de facto law of the monarchy in the colonies. So the Star Chamber was an elitist-operated justice system, or tribunal, originally designed so that the British aristocracy was assured a fair trial whenever they actually faced a criminal charge. In other words, it was a special court for the power elites that was so se- that was separate and superior to the courts used for average peasants. Publicly, it was also presented as a means for commoners to redress grievances against aristocrats. But it was also well understood the Star Chamber would rarely go against the nobility unless they had offended the king. And if they went against the king, they would be black-bagged just like anyone else. Now, during the unrest in the colonies, 
the Star Chamber was used in a different manner. It became a weapon to crush dissent among subjects that spoke out against the Empire and sowed the seeds of sedition. The dreaded court was highly secretive and the public was often obstructed from its proceedings. Its rulings were overseen by the establishment rather than a jury. And in many cases, those people being charged were never given a chance to defend themselves. They were sentenced before they ever entered a courtroom, if they entered a courtroom at all. Silence was often considered an admission of guilt rather than a right of the accused. Punishments were brutal, including torture rather, and imprisonment under the worst possible conditions. Now, interestingly, the death penalty was not allowed. But the court would instead place defendants in conditions so horrible that they tended to die on their own. And all of this was justified under the claim that every person charged was treasonous, therefore they did not deserve a fair trial among their peers. After the war was over and the British defeated, the Founding Fathers drafted large portions of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights to counter and prevent the same abuses they saw under the Star Chamber. The Fifth Amendment in particular was directly inspired as a way to stop Star Chamber-like abuses of court power. But let's leap ahead to the current day, where we find the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, now nearing its end, has beyond anything else revealed a vicious intention by the establishment to bring back the oppression of the Star Chamber through the media-manipulated court of public opinion, mob rule, as well as violations of established constitutional law. Now, the political left could have chosen the path of reason, allowing justice to take its natural course through a display of objectivity and fairness as John Adams and the Colonials did during the Boston Massacre trial. But they've instead chosen to take the same route as the British, motivated by a win-at-any-cost mentality, using lies, strategic omissions, censorship, and threats of mob violence to turn the Rittenhouse trial into a political proxy war. So here are just a handful of examples that show the establishment and the media are seeking to undermine centuries of normal constitutional protections, including the right of self-defense. Let's start with the Kenosha peaceful protest misdirection. Brandon Smith says, first, let's be very clear that the media's handling of the entire Kenosha incident was corrupt from the very beginning. Aside from refusing to call the riots that erupted what they were, riots, the media has constantly or consistently mischaracterized the police shooting as brutality against black suspect Jacob Blake. Blake, crippled by the incident, has been painted as a victim and hero in the news. So the reality is, Blake had a warrant out for his arrest, including trespassing, disorderly conduct, and sexual assault. The police were made aware of this before they attempted to detain him. Blake also had a history of resisting arrest and, of course, attempted to do so again in Kenosha. Video clearly shows Blake trying to march away from officers and jump back into his vehicle. Now, the media claimed Blake was unarmed, yet he's clearly holding a karambit-style knife in the same videos, which the police ordered him to drop, and he refused. The Wisconsin Department of Justice confirmed Blake was armed, and Blake himself admitted to having the knife. Now, officers were already on edge as Blake tried to reach into his car or use his car to get away or possibly use the car as a weapon. Frankly, Blake's history and behavior at the scene made him a criminal, not a hero or a victim. And all of this information was readily available within about a day of the event. But the media tried to hide these facts 
surrounding his shooting from the public, and they deliberately sowed seeds of unrest. And the ignorant and reactionary people within the BLM movement ate up their propaganda. So when violence broke out, the media portrayed the riots as peaceful protests for racial justice. Even though, just as with George Floyd, there was no evidence whatsoever that racial motivations had anything to do with it. The riots were based on lies from the beginning to end. And this false narrative has bled into and tainted the handling of the Kyle Rittenhouse case. For even if Kyle Rittenhouse was defending himself from attackers, the attackers are still presented as the good guys because they were fighting for social justice, which again is simply not true. Now I've got to take a quick break here, but I'm going to come back to Brandon Smith's article. If the media was deceiving us on these points, what else might they have uh, twisted, you know, to their own ends? If it sounds like I'm sowing seeds of distrust, I guess, in a sense, I'm just saying, don't take anything at face value that, uh, that the mainstream media is pushing in your direction because they've shown this propensity to distort or to otherwise mislead. Now, we've got a couple other examples coming up. Again, this is from Brandon Smith. The Rittenhouse case proves the establishment wants to bring back star chamber tyranny. And we'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to a couple of my sponsors, including GovernYourIncome.com. Now, I don't know if you have given serious consideration to, uh, you know, how dependent are you on the whims of someone else for your income? It's not to say it's a bad thing to work for somebody else, but a lot of folks are learning a pretty painful lesson right now that, you know, if, if your boss or if your corporation is one that's going along with the VAX mandates and trying to force something on you, go, oh, sorry, we're, our hands are tied. We don't want to be fined. Maybe it's time to take a little bit different approach and think about what you could be doing to support yourself in a truly independent way. Click on the link, governyourincome.com. It's at the bottom of my show notes. It will take you to a website which will describe how you can learn to do day trading in the foreign currency exchange markets. Look, stock markets can have their good and bad times, but the, the foreign currency exchange or Forex markets, they have to exist. No matter what's going on in China's market or Japan's or the U.S.'s stock market, that foreign currency exchange has to be going on. We're talking about a company that will train you so well that they would trust you with company money to get in there and make day trades. It's not for everybody. But if it's the kind of thing that you're looking for, and particularly if you're looking for real income independence, might be worth a second look. Just check out the link in my show notes. So I've been sharing this case for or this uh, this article from Brandon Smith. The Rittenhouse case proves the establishment wants to bring back star chamber tyranny. And he points out the, the distortion of how well, we were told from the very beginning, it's a peaceful protest. It was just a peaceful protest in Kenosha. 
This is where you get the meme of the reporter standing in front of the burning rubble and saying, fiery but mostly peaceful protests. <laughs> yeah, don't believe your eyes. I'll just gaslight you into thinking that what's happened here is really not that bad. Here's another example. The kid defending himself is actually considered the villain because he defended himself. Brandon Smith writes, The prosecution in the Rittenhouse case should have watched the widely available video evidence, including the secret FBI evidence, and seen that without a shadow of a doubt, Rittenhouse was defending himself from an unprovoked attack by an unhinged mob. Now, it's no coincidence that every person Rittenhouse was forced to shoot had a violent criminal record, including Joseph Rosenbaum, who had multiple convictions for pedophilia, including 11 counts of child molestation. These people were chasing Rittenhouse because they intended to do him harm, just as they had done others harm. But the media and the prosecution offer a bizarrely disconnected view, in which Kyle Rittenhouse provoked the mob into attacking him simply because he was there and because he had a firearm. Multiple witnesses and FBI surveillance footage indicate Joseph Rosenbaum chased, then attacked Rittenhouse, trying to take his rifle by force, which is why he was shot. But that doesn't matter in the Star Chamber. Lead prosecutor Thomas Binger openly argued that Rittenhouse lost his right to self-defense because he was carrying a gun. Now, Binger apparently overlooks the fact that one of Rittenhouse's attackers, Gage Grosskreutz, also had a gun illegally due to his felony record and admitted in court that he ran at Rittenhouse with the weapon pointed at him when Rittenhouse shot him. But somehow only Kyle's gun was the cause of the violence and all of his attackers were responding to the threatening presence of his weapon? Right. But Brandon Smith says this has been the overarching uh, crux of the prosecution's case as well as the media narrative. They're saying Rittenhouse should be treated as an active shooter and that the leftist mob was simply leaving, leaping into action, bravely trying to stop him. Now, that doesn't translate at all when you watch video of the event. It is clear that Rittenhouse is being pursued by the mob and they attack him from behind, causing him to fall to the ground. Only then does he defend himself with a rifle against his attackers, including Anthony Huber, who tried to bash Kyle's head in with a skateboard, and Grosskreutz, who ran at him with a Glock. Now, to clarify, because this may not be a widely understood factor, if someone is trying to get away from you, you cannot attack them and then legally claim self-defense was your motive. Only police officers have the right to physically detain a person who's trying to escape. Also, if Rittenhouse was an active shooter, you would think he would have fired belligerently into the crowd, but he did not. He only fired on the people trying to hurt him. So the prosecution and media narratives are a blatant attack on the right of self-defense in general. In closing arguments, the prosecution states, Rittenhouse was a coward. He should have used his fists to fight off the angry mob instead of using his rifle, displaying a clear intent to undermine not just Rittenhouse's character, but undermine the concept of overall gun rights. Now, Brandon Smith says the case is obviously politically slanted against Rittenhouse because he's conservative. Had this been a leftist shooting a mob of conservatives under the same circumstances at the January 6th riot, I doubt it would have ever gone to trial. But the implications of this are far-reaching. If Rittenhouse is found guilty, despite all the evidence to the contrary, 
The assertion will then be that self-defense is no longer a protected right for anyone with the wrong politics. It will be seen as open season on conservatives at any such events in the future, and all self-defense law will come into question, especially any defense law that involves gun rights. Now, he touches on a couple of other things here, like uh, the Fifth Amendment attack and the strategy of subverting a trial. He talks about silencing the alternative media and obstructing honest reporting. In fact, he says perhaps the most blatant act by the establishment has been to use big tech to censor various elements and observations of the Rittenhouse trial. Facebook and Twitter have been policing Rittenhouse-related posts. YouTube blocked the majority of independent streamers covering the live closing arguments of the case. The mainstream media has completely avoided any mention of this decision, but of course they would. It only makes them the, it makes them the only source for case coverage and their narrative the only narrative. How about that thermal surveillance evidence from the FBI that only saw the light of day in the middle of the trial? Withholding evidence is a direct obstruction of justice, but it's also a direct attempt to undermine public insight into the case. The narrative is easier to fabricate if one filters out any evidence that contradicts it. And this control of the narrative has led to widespread disinformation in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. I mean, there are many leftists out there that still actually think the people that Kyle shot were black and that Rittenhouse is a racist. The media has asserted for the past year Rittenhouse's self-defense was somehow related to white supremacy. Media hacks like CNN's Don Lemon have also insinuated the judge in the case is biased and possibly racist. So the Star Chamber is an ideal tyrannical tool, but the establishment and leftists don't have it in hand just yet. They want it badly. Their behavior during the Rittenhouse case makes this clear. In other words, Brandon Smith says, look, the Star Chamber is not upon us yet, but it is coming soon if these people get their way. Rule by the mob goes well beyond the effects of the Star Chamber, but this could be by design. Think of it this way. Say Rittenhouse is found not guilty and BLM mobs burn down Kenosha in response. Future courts and future juries in similar cases might then decide it's just easier to ignore facts and evidence so we can avoid mob violence. And the leftists are appeased. The Star Chamber, Star Chamber will return because it will be seen as a preferable alternative to national riots. It'll be a mechanism for the greater good, and the establishment will get what it wanted all along. This cannot be allowed to happen. The Rittenhouse trial does not represent a singular shooting event and an isolated case for self-defense. Brandon Smith says it's a fulcrum point for the very fabric of our society and what justice will actually mean in the years to come. So if an obviously innocent kid is convicted of murder merely because of his political beliefs, well... Or if a mob is allowed to burn or destroy swaths of a city because the verdict is not guilty, every effort the Founding Fathers made to stop the creation of another star chamber will be erased. That's pretty powerful stuff. Again, there's a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. These are the folks you want to talk to if you are looking to get a traditional home loan, a reverse mortgage, a VA loan, even if you just want to refinance your existing loan. Talk to the Heather Turner team. I've got a link in my show notes. It's an email that will connect you to her directly. All right, let's uh, let's jump into a couple of other topics here. I've got uh, three things I wanted to cover before I'm out of time. One of the one of the things was uh, Pat Buchanan had a pretty interesting take on Kyle Rittenhouse, and I, I may I'm sorry if you if you're sick of hearing about Kyle Rittenhouse. I like Pat Buchanan's take on a lot of stuff. It's rare that I disagree with him, but uh, this is not one of those cases where where I disagree. And since the question is out there, this is, you know, something the majority of the public has had to at least consider. Is Kyle Rittenhouse a solid citizen or is he a racist vigilante? Or maybe even somewhere in between, since there there may be more than just this binary choice. Well, it's pretty clear where the legacy media stands on this question, but Pat Buchanan has a pretty worthwhile take on the on the situation. He says in judging the actions of Kyle Rittenhouse, Set aside for a moment the the Wisconsin law under which he's being tried and consider the natural law, the moral law, the higher law written on the human heart. In terms of values demonstrated and deeds done that night that Rittenhouse shot the three men who attacked him, who was on the righteous side? Well, he says, consider what Rittenhouse did that night of August 25th, 2020, and why? Watching television, the nightly riots in Kenosha, Wisconsin, watching on watching this on TV, this was a town 20 miles from his home in Antioch, Illinois. And he knew Wisconsin, or he knew Kenosha well. Rittenhouse decided to go to Kenosha to protect property that embattled police had been unable to defend during the riots. Now, for protection, he picked up the AR-15 that he kept in Kenosha. By the way, if you know anything about Illinois' uh, gun laws, it would make sense. If you have family, which he did, in a neighboring state just 20 miles away, it would make sense to store it, you know, out of the the jurisdiction of gun grabbers like you'll find in Illinois. Toward midnight, Rittenhouse was confronted by Joseph Rosenbaum, an ex-con twice his age. Rosenbaum threatened Rittenhouse, backed him into a corner, and tried to grab the barrel of his rifle. And when a shot rang out nearby... Rittenhouse shot four times within a single second. When Rosenbaum fell, Rittenhouse took off running, looking for the police to turn himself in, with a mob in hot pursuit. Out of that mob, an assailant hit him in the head, knocking his hat off. Rittenhouse fell onto the street. Another rioter jumped, kicked, and stomped his head on the concrete pavement. Another hit him in the head with a skateboard. Another man confronted him with a loaded pistol and aimed it at Rittenhouse's face from a few feet away. Rittenhouse shot and killed Anthony Huber, who'd hit him with the skateboard and was grabbing his gun barrel, and wounded the man holding the gun to his face. When Rittenhouse shot both men, he was still on the ground. Now, while Rittenhouse's decision to go to Kenosha may have been unwise, it was also an unselfish and indeed brave act. He was risking his life in a riot to defend another man's property and do his civic civic duty in a situation of lawlessness. He could have stayed home, as almost everyone in Kenosha did that night while their city was burned and pillaged. 
And what were the motives and goals of Joseph Rosenbaum, the child rapist and ex-con, and Anthony Huber, who wielded the skateboard? What were they doing in Kenosha, if not helping to sustain a criminal riot to destroy property Rittenhouse had come to defend? Why was he there? I have no answer. I ask myself that question every day, said Rosenbaum's fiancé about that night. And again, whatever one thinks of Rittenhouse entering a volatile situation, he emerges as one of the good guys. His actions were taken for commendable goals, whereas his assailants' purposes were to engage in a criminal rampage and riot. This is why Rittenhouse is being so fiercely defended. People sense that whatever he did, the 17-year-old went to Kenosha to do the right thing. And those who believe the Black Lives Matter Antifa riots were justified are the ones who want Rittenhouse to spend the rest of his life in prison for shooting rioters who were threatening and attacking him for interfering with their crimes. Sensing Rittenhouse has the country behind him, media efforts have been mounted to find a racial element in Rittenhouse's motivation. President Joe Biden implied that the Kenosha shootings were the work of white supremacists. The president's statement was as ignorant as it was malicious. Rittenhouse is white. All three men he shot are white. His defense attorney and the prosecutor are white. The trial judge is white. Only Rosenbaum is recorded as having used the N-word that night during what was billed as a BLM protest for racial justice. Under Wisconsin law, Buchanan writes, the issue comes down to self-defense. Did Rittenhouse fire his AR-15 because he believed, with reason, that he might suffer death or serious bodily harm if he did not? Or did he provoke rioters into attacking him so he could run up a body count, as the prosecution alleges? Shooting the individual who put the loaded pistol in Rittenhouse's face was surely self-defense. And according to testimony, Rosenbaum and Huber both sought to grab the barrel of the AR-15 to pull it away in which case Rittenhouse would have been at their mercy and possibly dead. Now, the judge has expanded the range of choices which, of which Rittenhouse may be convicted, giving the jury a menu of lesser charges if they don't believe that Rittenhouse was guilty of intentional homicide. The prosecution has described Rittenhouse as an active shooter, calling to mind the Las Vegas gunman who massacred dozens of people from a music concert by firing from his hotel room window. But a 17-year-old running from a mob and shooting while sitting on the ground and being attacked scarcely fits the description of an active shooter. So Pat Buchanan says Kyle Rittenhouse used his rifle to protect someone else's property and his own life. He was both righteous and in the right. They, meaning his attackers, were in the wrong. I suspect there aren't very many people within the sound of my voice that uh, are hearing this that are that are disagreeing with it. I mean, you might you might quibble on some points, but I think Pat Buchanan's got a pretty good case here from a moral standpoint. Yeah, I think Rittenhouse was in the right, and it doesn't change the fact this guy is going to carry with him the trauma of ending two people's lives. You, your your psyche punishes you for these kind of things, even under the best of circumstances. Sure, going to be interesting to see how this all shakes out. Got a, <coughs> excuse me, I've got a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. And uh, there's, here's another, another story that you're not hearing a lot about, but one to keep your eye on. Have you seen where the Oklahoma National Guard's new commanding general is not obeying Pentagon dictates 
to administer the vaccine mandate to all of the National Guard troops in Oklahoma. Got an article here from Ryan McMacken from Mises.org. Says in a surprising development, Republican Governor Kevin Stitt refused to implement the Biden administration's vaccine mandate. And this has placed the governor directly at odds with Pentagon brass and with the White House as it aggressively attempts to enforce its latest vaccine mandate upon all military personnel. Here's how the Washington Post sums up the situation. Governor Kevin Stitt last week removed the state's adjutant general who had directed troops to comply with the vaccine mandate and replaced him with a new commanding general who promptly issued the order rejecting it. In his memo, Brigadier General Thomas Mancino, the state's new National Guard commander, said personal personnel rather could sidestep the policy with no repercussions unless they are put on federal duty. Now, Ryan McMacken points out the legal situation's complicated. As originally imagined by early Americans, the state militias are supposed to be independent military units unless called into national service during wartime. Moreover, state governors have at times exercised a de facto veto over federal control of state troops. Since the National Defense Act of 1933, however, National Guard units have been deemed members of both the state's National Guard and the federal military. Moreover, over time, the federal government has gradually eroded the authority of state governors in controlling the deployment and use of state troops. By 1990, governors had lost virtually all of their independence. National Guard troops in each state nominally remain under the command of the respective governors unless activated by the U.S. president. Thus, it appears Governor Stitt is attempting to take advantage of these few remaining powers in order to refuse mandating vaccines for state troops. Now, not surprisingly, that's led to resistance from the Pentagon, and if past experience is any indicator, the Pentagon will not hold back in devising ways to punish Oklahoma and its National Guard chain of command unless it quickly falls back into line. We're going to come back to this article here in just a few moments, but I'm wondering if the cracks are beginning to appear, and you are going to see more states start to assert their own sovereignty in matters like this. Is it something to be scared about? I don't know. Don't know enough about it, but we'll touch on it when we come back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Currently sharing an article from Ryan McMacken from Mises.org. I actually picked this up off LewRockwell.com this morning. The Oklahoma National Guard refused the VAX mandate. The Pentagon is not pleased. And this here's a question that has to be answered. Who is actually in charge of Oklahoma's troops? Over the weekend, Oklahoma's adjutant general issued a statement on the state's guard vaccine policy. And in it, it says, under Title 32, Congress established a dual framework for the National Guard. The states receive federal funding in return for being made available to the federal government when called to active duty by the president. Under Title 32, the Oklahoma National Guard is a state-controlled, federally funded entity and takes orders from the governor at his designated chain of command. When mobilized by the president under Title 10, 
The Oklahoma National Guard takes all orders from the president and his designated chain of command. Failing to follow the governor's lawful orders while on Title 32 would be both illegal, unethical, and against our sworn oaths. Nothing in this order prevents anyone from taking the vaccine. Also, nothing in his order eliminates the federal requirement. The governor is hoping for federal relief from the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, and in the interim has granted state relief from this requirement. So until a guardsman is activated under Title 10, they follow the lawful commands of the governor of the state of Oklahoma, who has not mandated the COVID-19 vaccine for Oklahoma Guard members. Once activated to Title 10 status, guardsmen are subject to all Title 10 laws and mandates until returning to Title 32 status. So if you, meaning the Oklahoma Guard members, are not mobilized on Title 10 orders, the only entity that can give you a lawful order, that is an order backed by the authority of law, is the governor and his designated state chain of command. That law is Title US 32 or Title 32 U.S. Code. This is easily seen by the fact that the Uniform Code of Military Justice does not apply to you in Title 32 status. Instead, you are governed by the Oklahoma Code of Military Justice. And this is the end of that quote there. So, McMacken says it's notable that in response to this accurate legal interpretation from the governor, the Pentagon has done little other than just insist repeatedly it has the authority to force compliance. Yet no specific legal authority is quoted or invoked. Yet the Pentagon has plenty of tricks up its sleeves for when it uh, comes to getting uh, compliance from state National Guard units. For example, in the 1980s, Ohio Governor Richard Celeste refused to send National Guard troops to Honduras to assist with the Pentagon's various interventions in Central American regimes. So the Pentagon immediately made plans to remove military resources from Ohio in an effort to embarrass the governor. The idea was that the Ohio economy would suffer as military spending in the state was withdrawn. And the governor soon caved to the Pentagon's orders. Thus, the Pentagon has grown accustomed to immediate and unquestioning obedience from state governors, although this is directly contrary to the very idea of state-controlled military units. We saw a similar response from the Pentagon in 2019, when the legislature of West Virginia contemplated limiting Pentagon control of West Virginia's troops. Specifically, some West Virginia lawmakers considered a bill limiting the state's National Guard deployments to only military operations conducted during a period of congressionally declared war. The Pentagon immediately threatened to use the cudgel of federal spending in West Virginia if the bill was adopted. So it's likely the Pentagon will do the same in Oklahoma, should the governor persist in refusing to enforce the vaccine mandate. On Wednesday, for example, the Pentagon repeatedly, reportedly claimed that if Oklahoma does not comply, it will no longer be maintaining national recognition and the Guard will become just a state militia. This is, a, this is likely a step on the way to removing all federal funding from the state's Guard in the manner used in the past as a means of turning the screws on state government. Moreover, says Ryan McMacken, the Pentagon has hinted it will force compliance by going after individual Guard members on a case-by-case basis. Now, given that these troops are under the command of the state government, however, it's unclear who will hold them accountable to to the rule and what punishments, if any, will be handed down. Unfortunately, military spending is so centralized in the federal government that it will be difficult for Oklahoma or any other state 
to refuse Pentagon orders in anything beyond the short term. Moreover, thanks to generations of militarist hysteria over communists and terrorists, the U.S. military establishment has greatly centralized military command authority in Washington overall. Yet Ryan McMacken says this is good news overall. Combined with the U.S. military's turn toward woke politics, this latest episode around vaccine mandates will further help to undermine support for military institutions among conservatives the very group that has for so many decades offered untrammeled obedience and deference in favor of the Pentagon's agenda. That's an interesting twist, and it's an interesting story. Definitely want to uh, keep your eyes on this one. All right, one final note here, and this is uh, the latest from Annie Holmquist from Intellectual Takeout, Why Your Son Should Reconsider College. She says, a young friend of mine's in his last year of high school asking the old age, the age-old question, what should I do with my life? Most average high school seniors would be settling on their final liberal arts college choice right now, more concerned about the climbing wall in the student center and the cafeteria entrees than the degree in sociology that they're about to fork out tens of thousands of dollars for. But she says, not this young man. He's almost certain that he's going to trade school next year at the Minnesota-based Dunwoody College of Technology. Oh, I can almost hear you say in a dejected tone, what's his problem? Isn't he smart enough to get into real college? Au contraire, she says. This young man is very intelligent, polite, and capable. He could easily have chosen to to attend a prestigious college. But she says, I would contend that his trade school choice shows that he's smarter than most kids his age. For he knows which way the wind is blowing and has decided that trade school is the best way to get his feet solidly under him while he's still in his young 20s. So why is trade school looking like an increasingly smart idea for young men like my friend to choose over college? And Annie Holmquist says several possibilities come to mind. For starters, trade school offers various securities, the most obvious being financial. She says if my young friend were to graduate from Dunwoody today, he would likely start a job with an average salary of almost $54,000. Now, that average has risen $5,000 just in the last year alone. Contrast this with the average starting salary for a Minnesota college graduate. That number stands at just over $37,000, according to Zip Recruiter. So perhaps the reason for such a higher average salary is the increasing demand for those who labor with their hands. The baby boomer generation has long filled the electrician, plumber, welder, and other traditional job trades, but with their accelerating retirement comes a dearth of blue-collar workers. For every one that enters the trades, five retire. That's according to Industrial Safety and Hygiene News. They reported that back in 2019. So this statistic promises a lot of job security to young people just starting out. Those who enter trade school can also have a good shot at an independent life. Depending on the trade they learn, graduates may be able to start their own company. Being your own boss these days means avoiding such things as vaccine mandates threatened for big businesses. It also means you're less likely to be canceled in our crazed, politically correct world of white-collar jobs where diversity and inclusion seminars are standard fare and where holding a door for a woman could get you labeled as a sexist. Trade school also gives students a good foundation for life because it often takes less time to complete than traditional college, and because hard skills are in such demand. Students who choose trade school can jump into the workforce at a young age, accumulate reasonable savings, and even choose to attend college a while down the road when their few extra years of maturity and financial stability will help them succeed. 
And lastly, there's another advantage to trade school that many prefer not to mention. It's a form of higher education monopolized by males. Now, this is unpopular because today's culture is all about gender balance. Females are disadvantaged. We must give women extra help to break through the glass ceiling, or so the thinking goes. But this quest seems to have hurt males immensely. Back in fall of 2021, the Wall Street Journal ran a feature-length article on the rapid decline in male college enrollment. Reading between the lines, she says, one can guess that the politically correct quest to fixate on women and policies like diversity, equity, and inclusion... It's why colleges have lost men, and they're only realizing it just too late. So, people often wonder what they can do to fight against an eroding culture. Annie Holmquist says, I'm starting to think that sending our nation's sons to trade school might be one positive thing that parents can do. Financially secure, independent, mature, and capable men like those who graduate from trade schools are the ones ready to lead their communities and settle down with families. And strong families and communities will go a long way towards restoring our decaying society. I think she has a point here. You can find a link to this article in today's show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Hit the subscribe button. I'll send those show notes right to your email inbox each and every weekday morning. This is The Brian Hyde Show.